Hello there. As mentioned in previous episodes, I spent part of August in Hobart to attend the Australian Antarctic Festival. Excellent representations there from the Australian Antarctic Division, various tourism operators, equipment suppliers and service contractors, the Aurora Australis alongside, and a huge Lego model of the RSV Nyena, currently under construction in Romania and slated for commission in 2020, built by Brickman and really making me question my Lego work ethic and the outcomes when it comes to my own scale representations of things. And making the Lego Arctic kits of 2014, which I love, look uninspired. But it was the Anari Club display and representatives that drew me to the Tasmanian capital. Anari was the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions, the banner under which Australians went south between 1947 and 1986. While Australian Antarctic efforts are now the purview of the Australian Antarctic Division, the living National Antarctic heritage still comes together under the logo of the Leaping Lizard, Philip Law's stylized leopard seal in yellow on a green pennant, in the form of the Inari Club. Comprising past members of the Australian expeditions, the Inari Club publishes a quarterly journal, gathers for regional and national events, and works to preserve Australia's Antarctic history so I really felt well disposed toward them before I even met any Inari club members. On arriving at the festival, those club members attending to their display booth made me feel most welcome, and many of them sat down with me to recount some of their experiences in Antarctica and Australia's subantarctic islands. Where my lack of experience in interviewing often leaves me with a lot of dead air to edit out of a recording, where I don't know what to ask and the subject doesn't know what to say, the Inari club members being a self-selecting crowd of Antarctic enthusiasts, rarely needed much prompting to hold forth about their time on the ships, the islands, or the ice, and pressing record on my device felt akin to turning on a tap. The information just flowed out of these people who seemed happy to share their stories with me, and by proxy, with you. A couple of Anari Club members weren't willing to share their experiences with my recording device, but I was very happy to meet them regardless. The opportunity to meet and speak with each person who gave me the time of day made my trip to Hobart worth my while, and where previously I could pull books off my shelves and point to faces and tell you who a particular person was and what they did in terms of Antarctic history, there's now a small number I can point to and say, I met them and we had coffee and talked about their dog team, or I sat next to them at the Macquarie Island 70th anniversary dinner and they told me about the fun and games involved in operating a hydrogen generator which is friggin' cool. I recorded interviews with around a dozen Anari Club members and will publish them as a series of September episodes. I'm incredibly grateful to the Anari Club for making me feel so welcome in their company, for sharing their experiences with me both on and off the record, and for their interest in my own experiences as a diver at Ross Island. I wanted to get to Kingston to record some interviews with current Australian Antarctic Division staff, but that never came through, and the same is true for the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies, which is a division of the University of Tasmania. So there's still a lot of material I would like to bring to the series through future visits to Hobart, or through coming adventures with Zencaster software. I also visited the replica of the Cape Denison huts on the quayside, and found it a most excellent interpretive representation of life in Commonwealth Bay during the Australian Antarctic Expedition. 
I enjoyed a long and edifying conversation with one of their docents, whose name now eludes me. Damn it. She was awesome. Very knowledgeable and great at talking visitors through the structures and artefacts. And she gave me the inside track on the likely correct pronunciation of Robert Badger's surname. The Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery also features an excellent permanent exhibition mapping Australia's geological, biological, meteorological and historical connections with Antarctica, and I never get to spend enough time in it. The Bond Store section of the museum was host to the finalist images of the festival photographic competition, and the beautifully printed and artfully lit pictures made for a stunning showcase of the best entries, a worthy win going to Sam Edmonds. So, on to the first of the interviews I recorded at the festival. I did what I could to restrict the extraneous sound of the hardware and then again in post-production, but festivals are inherently noisy, so the sound quality is what it is. But this series is known for its content and not its form, so the sound quality shouldn't bother anyone still listening at this late stage. Here's what I recorded on sitting down with Bob Tompkins. Speaking to Bob Tompkins at the Antarctic Festival in Hobart, glorious day, and um, you're staffing the Inari Club. Um, stall. So you're a past Antarctican? Yes, I went to uh, Mawson in 1970 for 15 months and Macquarie Island in 1975 for 15 months and then another four or five months the next summer and then again to Macquarie Island in 81, 82. 15 month deployment you said at yes, one point? Yeah. That's, that's a far longer spin, spell than I've ever done anything so, I, I just, I've never wintered anywhere, so I don't have any experience. So any, any stories that you have about that would be very interesting to listeners. Well, the huge advantage of, um, well, first of all, I went down to Mawson in 1970 as a Met man, weather observer, and you don't really know anything for the first six months. Um, so to be able to stay down there for 15 months, which is two summers and the intervening winter, you know, by that time you should know something. So the second and third time you go down, you've got a bit of an idea how to do things. But the first time you, you know, you know Jack Hall. And in that era, Australia was still using dog teams to get people about. Oh yeah, oh yeah, very much so. Um, the the dog teams. Uh, at Mawson in 1970 and the years before and the years after was so popular that in the Met office we organised our four-man team to have a, to have a three-man roster so that you could always have because three of the four of us were active so that we could always have somebody out in the field preferably running the dogs so the rest of, it, the rest of us would work stupid hours very non-union stupid hours, so that the one person could always be out. Dogs are king. Fantastic. I, I, I've spoken to a few people that have driven dog teams, and I'm, I'm incredibly envious that it's not something that's available to the, the present-day Antarctic experience. Um, well, and there's a man who knows mo more about dogs, Ron, Rob Nash. I've got to talk to him later on. Hey, Rob. Um, just incredible and I 
in some ways I, not pity, but I don't envy modern day explorers because they've really got everything laid on and I don't know how much atmosphere they get of Antarctica unless they go out into the field. Um, and to go out in one of those enormous great big machines which are here on display now is very good. Um, but years gone by, they were nothing like that. And the other option were dogs. And that was the way to go. Without doubt. Not everybody, but even to have done a little dog trip would be good. Better to have done a little one than never have done it at all. And your, your winter experiences, how many people were on station with you at the time? Um, at Morse in 1970, there were 22. At Macquarie Island, 1975, I don't really know because I was never... I went down as part of the ABC TV Natural History Unit film crew to do a series of four documentaries on the wildlife of Macquarie Island. So we were never in the base, we were always out in the field. They had a series of field huts scattered in key positions on Macquarie Island, which is a, one of the more incredible places in the world. Um, and we were lucky enough to be living out there. I think there was about 21, I think about 20, no, plus us, that would probably make it 23. Yeah. So that, don't quote me. And... Macquarie Island, just people come back and they talk about the weather as being something completely outside any sort of Antarctic continental experience. Is it, is it that demanding, the, the rain and the wind? Um, it's absolutely, totally different. Absolutely. Um, but when you know, people talk about being cold in Antarctica, you know, wouldn't it be cold if you went to Antarctica? Well, it is, but then you've got the proper clothes and you've um, got things to do. And after a while, you more or less acclimatise to it. In fact, there have been studies done on acclimatisation. And it happens. Likewise at Macquarie Island, if, like us, you were out in the field. I think we slept out in the field 78% of the nights over 15 months. And that included five or six weeks where we actually slept in a bed in the base, but went down the elephant seal by day. So we, we, we slept there, but that's all. But when you're in that sort of environment all the time, you gear up to it, uh, you become accustomed to it, and you learn how to, how to manage yourself so that you didn't get too adversely affected by the weather. And at Macquarie, we had the enormous advantage of having warm, dry field huts. So we didn't live in a tent. So no, no matter what happened in wintertime, no matter what happened in the daytime, we could always go back to a very small, small, snug, warm hut, and that was fine. These were the apple huts of the oh, no, era? No, this is way before apple. Oh, okay. Um, at Lusitania Bay, Lucy Bay, with 55,000 king penguins were breeding, uh, it was an old engine um, uh, aircraft packing case, which rather than throw away, they dumped at Macquarie Island, two of them, <coughs> sort of waterproof them, um, more or less windproof them, 
and uh, when you put a fireside heater inside, they're absolute like a snuggle. They were beautiful. Was working in Antarctica something that you held as an ambition from childhood, or was it something that crept up on you, or was it something that was sprung on you? I, I hate to say it, but I almost had never heard of it. Didn't know anything about it. And um, I did a fair bit of rowing in New South Wales, and I was really cheesed off with one um, state championship I was participating in, and because we didn't do very well because half the crew was slack as blazes, and I was pissed off. And I just put my head up that night, and there was an advertisement for service in, in, in Antarctica. So I said, right, that's me, I'm off. And um, I was two, uh, two people out of uh, 400 applicants who was accepted. So it was my day. So I said, right, that'll do me. And down I went. So and never looked back since. Quite a life-changing moment. Absolutely. It's absolute, totally, totally life-changing. Absolutely. In a very, very very good way very positive way what um, I might I might throw it out there as a question and you can think about it and get back to me later but the the single most wonderful experience that you've had in the south and the, the single most harrowing experience that you've had in the south if you can draw on those at some point that'd be interesting uh, well they're both at Macquarie Island the most thrill of, thrilling of all um, on Macquarie Island, I des- uh, developed a passion for albatross, wandering albatross. And um, I worked with them then and then later on. And um, um, they young birds, um, two or three year old birds, who have come back for the first time, are very young and inquisitive. And I remember laying in the grass watching one, and one came up to me and I put my hand out to touch it and it just nibbled my fingers, nibbled around my glove. And that was contact supreme. Never never had a more thrilling experience than that. Um, even running with the dogs uh, was marvellous. But that moment with the albatross, young albatross, and the most terrifying, again on Macquarie Island, I spent a lot of time on my own, um, and uh, maybe head office shouldn't hear this, but um, sometimes you do things which you shouldn't do. And I wanted to go from point A to point B along the coast. And they said, you can't do it. And I said, all right, so I tried to. And then I had to go up a very steep cliff to get to the top, to get over there. And the penguins were going up there. So I thought, if they can go up there, I can go up there. And that's absolute sheer stupidity, wrong and total nonsense. And I got up. 30, 40 metres up the cliff, and by this time I was hanging on with fingernails and toes in the boots dug in the thing with a heavy pack on, and I decided I was, couldn't go any further, and I had to go back down. But if you fall, and you don't die straight away, you know, there's skewers on the beach and giant petrels, and they like eating things. And I thought, no, 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 this is, um, this is not a good place to be. And that's probably the most terrifying moment of my life. I'll just point out that Bob is actually far smarter than me because I've been in that situation, not in that spot, and I kept going. And I have that scar as a reward for my stupidity. 
So bravo for thinking your way through that one, Bob. The, the long contracts, the long 15-month deployments with 20, 22, 23 other people, um, I've, I've covered a lot of expeditions where people got very toasty on their, on their winters. Did you see some of that sort of odd behaviour, the, the psychology that starts to creep in with the, the long dark? Well, um, at Mawson, which is on the Antarctic continent, in 1970, I was at the base most of the time, except going out to a couple of little trips and then a long dog trip. So both, most of the time I was there. That year we had a very good crew and um, young people and um, we we got on, some of us got on very, sorry, as always, you form cliques, little groups, and the various little cliques got on very well, and it was a very active year, um, people went out and did things, it was a social year, that bloke who's coming with the red jacket is Max Corrie, he's one of very few who have been on the Amy Ice Shelf in winter, he is numero uno, don't let him go. Um, yeah, you're in the right place. Um, so I didn't experience, we didn't, I didn't experience any long-term hassles. We had a hassle with one bloke, but um, uh, sheer group pressure uh, kept him on the straight and narrow. Yeah, kept him on the straight and narrow. But at Macquarie Island, again 15 months, I didn't, I wasn't at the base. I spent almost all that time with a another individual bloke, David Perra, um, who's a, one of the world's leading wildlife program makers, <coughs> and he'll be down to later on today, um, but who I'd met at Mawson, by the way, and done a big dog trip with, so we knew each other, and um, a better companion you'll never find, um, and it, again, also, was a sublimely wonderful year. So I have had no experience, and my summers, um, I've not had any problems, but I was out in the field all the time. Uh, so I'm lucky I've never had any of those problems, but I know they do exist. But if you're busy, I think, if you're busy and you get on with your job and you get out in the field, there's no time for all the bitching. That, that seems to be a common thread in the historical expeditions that I've covered. The, the expeditions that had work to do and kept themselves busy through the darkness got along well and those that were at a bit of a loose end and didn't have a plan for how they were going to occupy the time that's where things get a bit bit short and a bit crazy well I took I wanted to learn uh, Swedish I wanted to learn the clarinet and there was something else I wanted to do I think I opened page one of my Swedish book I learned one phrase on the clarinet uh, and I I took down um, War and Peace as well and I don't think I opened it there just was not time, you know. I'd heard about the long, dark winter nights and oh, you'll be looking for things to do. Well, it didn't happen. <laughs> um, you've mentioned your albatross experience um, and elephant seals. Did you encounter the leopard seals at all in your travels? Ah, no. Yes, I did, but no. Um, at Mawson, I think we saw a couple... Macquarie Island we saw a couple but I was with David Perry doing the wildlife filming and we particularly wanted a sequence 
of the leopard seals, grabbing the penguins <coughs> and flailing them, skinning them, blah, 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 blah. All very dramatic. Great stuff for the viewer on TV. And we spent ages sitting on clifftops, both sides of the island, at the two penguin rookeries, waiting, looking, and then trying to get, that night, getting on the radio and talking to each other. Not a single sausage. So yes, they're there, yes, lots of people see them, yes. Uh, everyone's got stories to tell about them. Have we got them on film? No. They're Photographer's they're... nightmare. Are you, are you still travelling to Antarctica? No, 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 no. Uh, they, they haven't... I've had a pacemaker inserted in 1991 and that automatically excluded me from anything to do with um, um, Australian Antarctic Division. Even though I think it still could, certain things could be done, um, their policy is no. But you're clearly very active in the Inari Club. Oh, a little bit compared to some people. Just potter along. <laughs> Interested, yes. Not that active in the club. Thank you so much for your time. That's Next up, Anari Club President Joe Johnson, not to be confused with the other Joe Johnson, who was a geologist with the British Antarctic Survey. Such confusion isn't new to me, Matthew MacArthur being a ridiculously common name among my cohort, to the point there were three of us on the New Zealand Register of Commercial Divers at the same time, and one of them was a student in my Marine Invertebrates and Ecological Statistics units back in 2005. Stupid commoner's muck name could have been Max Delta V, but no, no to adventure, and yes to tradition and stodgy Anglo-conformity. Anywho, this Joe Johnson received the Polar Medal in 2001, and while I've met other Polar Medal recipients, I haven't recorded our interactions, so I think this is a first for the series. What, what is your connection with the Inari? Well, I was the uh, station leader at Casey in 1981 came back as station leader Davis in 1998 because they couldn't find suitable candidates that year. They three or four stations, they found two suitable ones, and they then rang around desperately to find people. I'd come down to an Antarctic Science Symposium here uh, earlier that year, it was in August, and a lot of people came up to me and said, have you thought of going south again? And I said, well, not really, but after I'd been asked this question about 20 times, I began to get a bit suspicious, and the director, Rex Monker, came up and said, are you interested in going south again? And I said, look, what is going on here? And he said, we're two station leaders down, and yours is one of the names that people have suggested might be a good person to come in and do it. And as it happened at that stage, I was involved in the public service downsizing in, in Canberra. And I was the, uh, I'd been moved from being an operations manager personnel so I could do all the knifing of the core people who weren't going to be offered another, you know, they gave me offered redundancies. And I was very, I was not happy in that job, so I offered myself a redundancy, knowing that I, I had a, a job waiting in the Antarctic Division and went down again in 97 for the, the 98 season. Uh, I came back from there and the Antarctic Division wanted me to stay on another nine months to work on the survey for the Airlink. So we're working with uh, James Shelvin, who was working full-time at the division, we together designed the new Antarctic Airlink. And that sort of somehow fed me back into the Antarctic community. And I was a couple of years later asked to join the uh, Names and Medals Committee that decides place names and the award of the Antarctic Medal. So I chaired that for 10 years, having decided, you know, I said I'd do it for a year. 
And 10 years later, I thought, well, it's time I broke this mould. I'm coming down from Canberra to Hobart. Luckily, my in-laws lived here at the time, so it made it a bit easier. But that's basically my connection with the Antarctic. I've just written a book on, on, of all things, the contribution of the Scottish nation to Antarctica, having been born in Argyllshire, and that's going to be published by Erskine Press probably very early next year. Oh, I'm very excited about that. So oh. that's, a, but that's the first uh, serious account of the contribution of people from Scotland. I was going to say that they've, they've almost been written out of the histories yes, deliberately. Yes, and, and, and we had our first, the first purely science expedition to go to Antarctica. Unfortunately, it took place the same year that Scott was doing his first oh, expedition on the other side of the continent. And the Scotia expedition was not only the first genuine science one, but it actually ran at a profit. They came back, I think they made... £292.76. The books go down to the halfpenny. It's incredible. I've seen them in the archives in Edinburgh. And, and they actually ran at a profit. And they, they were so strict with their accounting that they, they costed down to a halfpenny. What's, what's your book called? Saltar Beyond the Sea Ice. Saltar oh, Beyond the Sea Ice. Very nice. I look forward to reading that immensely. That, that's something very dear to my heart. Um, was Antarctica an ambition for you from an early age? It has been it... an ambition all my life, a somewhat uh, subdued one because families didn't think it was a great idea, but as a little boy in Scotland, Captain Cook was my hero, and Cook had gone further south in Antarctica in a wooden ship not much larger than the Manly Ferry. In the 18th century, I thought, if this man can go there and can do this, there must be something attractive about that place. And from that age on, I think I would have been about five, before he came to Australia, uh, and I'd always had the fascination with the Antarctica from that moment onward. And I was one of the very few students at Monash University who took glaciation as a third year geography subject. And I was lectured there by a New Zealand geographer who, although he hadn't been to Antarctica, knew a lot about it. And I did some field work on the Tasman and the Franz Josef glaciers as part of my honours year. So, like Douglas Mawson, who went to Antarctica to see a continental glacier, it was, that was, he was really interested in going there because he'd studied the post-glacial landscapes and continental glaciers for years, but the only one he could get to that was real was Antarctica, and that was also part of my interest. So my first year was at Casey, where I worked on those big overland geological traverses, uh, attempting to calculate the speed of the ice sheet. But in those days, before the advent of satellites that flew far enough south, a lot of that had to be done by uh, false horizons using a sextant and things like that, and, and astro-compasses. So you were never really accurate to more than, I suppose, at the very best, 250 yards. And your leadership role at which station? Ah, at Casey and then again at Davis. And I went down twice as what they call the voyage leader, looking after the relief ship. Once on the polar bird, and we were beset in the ice for 30-something days on that voyage, which made us a little bit famous in Australia at the time. And then I took the Captain Klebnikov, the Russian ship, down the year after that, purely because I spoke very poor Russian, but I was the only person in the Antarctic Division, apart from Andrew Jackson, who had any knowledge of Russian at all. So I think I landed that job, which is absolutely fascinating, because I could speak sufficient Russian to converse with the, with the ship's officers on the bridge. And were you base leader through winters? Or? Yes, two winters. In charge of how many people at a time? At Casey, it was the earlier party, I had 32. At Davis in 1998, there were only 17 in the winter party. The summer party, however, was over 150. And that was a marvellous exercise in logistics because I was in charge of an area larger than Victoria and New South Wales combined. 
and is having to support field parties all over those areas and deal with scientists arguing about who, who needed the resources most and things like that. That sounds like my worst nightmare. What, what prepares a person for that sort of responsibility? Well, I'd, I'd served in the Army Reserve for 38 years. I'm a Vietnam veteran. And amongst the courses I'd done, I did the Senior Officers Logistics course. And that was a very good preparation for it. But I was used to, to handling large numbers of people and vehicles and maintaining stores and hospital systems and things like that. From my military experience, that was very useful. The other military experiences in terms of leadership were useless because uh, you don't go down and put your swagger stick under your arm and say, do this. It's people turn around and say, you know what you can do. So you, you had to change your leadership patterns completely. And I've been asking people, and you're welcome to think about this and come back to me later, the most inspiring moment in Antarctica and the most harrowing moment for you in Antarctica. I think the most inspiring moment is just the confrontation with a fairly pristine environment and the fact that you are in an area that man hasn't the chance to completely despoil yet. I think that's the most exhilarating uh, part of it. Uh, I think if you, uh, and, and I'd studied, just as for interest, I'd done a diploma in theology through the Jesuit College in, in London. And being educated by the Jesuits gives you a very good insight into theories of creation and things like that. They don't teach you that, that God arrived and the Pope blessed them. It's far more complex than that. Uh, and so I was able to look at all these theories of the origin of mankind and, and, and the earth before man despoiled it. And although you don't have much time to contemplate that when you're running the station, it's still very interesting. The most harrowing moment, I think, was uh, having an expedition in my first year who got critically ill and we had to operate on him, and it was a touch-and-go operation. Uh, he survived, and he actually went back four years later and was subsequently awarded the Antarctic Medal for rescuing a person who went through the sea ice at Davis. And that was an operation the whole station had to get involved in. Uh, at the time, the immediate post-operative diagnosis wasn't good, and I was having to cope in my mind with how I would handle it, a death on the station and the effects that would have on, on the station's morale because the, the patient was one of the most popular expeditioners. His nickname was Indian because he was one of the very few who didn't want to be a chief. <laughs> very, very nice man, still alive. Uh, that expedition, we got on so well together, we have a reunion every five years in a different part of Australia each time. And we still see two-thirds of the survivors at, 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 at any one of those. So I think that's a backhanded compliment to my leadership. I think it is. The the intensity of life on station um, seems to either go one way or another. It becomes very intense, long-lasting friendships or you never want to see that person again and you'll go a long way out of your way to avoid them. I think it's fair to say that the success rate of expeditioners is about 80%. 80% uh, love the Antarctic and would come back at every, every opportunity and there's always a few blokes who don't. There's always at least one person that I find in the party who, who should not be there for a variety of reasons, quite often his own, uh, and they never want to come back again. They can't see the ship coming quick enough. But generally speaking, <coughs> a good party will manage a couple of, of, of misfits. I was very fortunate in that year that three of my expeditioners were ex-submariners and they were used to putting up with anybody in a confined space. And in fact, uh, in those days, the psychological tests to select the expeditions were based on the Defence Department's submariner test. 
but if you survive as a submariner, the chances were you'd survive well in the Antarctic. And they actually did. They were very, very good, those, those three fellows. And, and I, I still see them every five years, and they get on very well together. What's your what was, what was the ratio of ex-military to civilian participants in your in your time? In my first expedition, I had out of uh, twenty-eight who went in, five were ex-servicemen. Of those, four would have been out of the five best expeditions on the station. One was a, the other one was a civilian who had been a, a plumber up the back of Narbathong in Victoria and, and got on very well with everyone. But the servicemen tended to be the best purely because they were used to doing what they were told. They were used to living in a, an environment that wasn't all that friendly to them. Uh, and they were used also to having to tolerate everybody else. I mean, uh, a military section, you depend on everyone else for your livelihood. Uh, and, and as a result, you get on well with them, even if you didn't want to. And I think... I think the military in that way is a good preparation, but on the other hand, someone who survived in the country area can be, be very good. I'll give an example. Uh, towards the end of my stay at Casey, when the relief ship had actually just come in, one expedition was blown off a platform and needed a skin graft on his leg. Now, my doctor for the, the whole year before was a young two years old hospital graduate, and he got very worried about this because stocks of uh, anaesthetics, bandages, etc., had run down, and the new lot was only just being uh, put into, into effect. But the incoming doctor had been Dr. Yak and Dander in Victoria and was taking a year off to get away from Yak and Dander. He took one look at this guy and said, he said, I've seen worse than that on the Yak pub every Saturday night. I'll fix you, son. And took him away and took, took a graft off his backside and stitched it onto his leg <laughs> and didn't look back. And, 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 and he wasn't worried about, about lack of sterility and things like that. Uh, but, and, and that kind of person is, is extraordinarily useful. And the Antarctic Division has done a lot in the field of uh, remote area medicine. In fact, there's now a college of remote area medicine in the medical profession. And that was effectively established by Antarctic doctors. And it now does what they call a remote area medicine for people who are going to be the sole doctor in a place like Burke or the Siding Springs or somewhere like that, and therefore have to be good at everything. And your experiences on the ships um, I get terribly seasick what, what's it been like for you crossing well I'm very fortunate I spent my childhood on the northwest coast of Scotland and the only way in and out of my village was in the war years no one had a car was my little tiny steamer and the result that I just have been very fortunate I've never been seasick but I had one terrible day on the Captain Klebnikov two days out of Cape Town we hit 15 metre waves and an icebreaker has got a round bottom so it's not designed for this kind of water. And I had 100 out of 102 expeditioners so sick they couldn't move. The ship's galley could not, use, could not be used for cooking because everything fell off the stove, so there was no hot food. We had, those who, who could eat really only had stale bread, but not that many people were interested in the That's the worst I've seen. On the other hand, I've known a, a trip down to Casey when it's, it's been as smooth as Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra. <laughs> Joe Johnson, thank you so so much for your time. That's wonderful. Ian Tuhill is in the process of generating a Nari Club oral histories and graciously placed himself on the other side of the recording device on the festival Saturday, in addition to making many invaluable introductions on my behalf.
in Tuvahill at the 2018 Antarctic Festival in Hobart. Ian, can you tell us what took you to Antarctica, please? Well, in 1957, when I was uh, eight years old, I watched um, Sir Vivian Fuchs cross the Antarctic continent on, uh, on a film for the first time, and um, it inspired me. And I said, one day I'm going to go there. And so, um, as an Army Reserve officer um, responsible for a troop of uh, larks, which are light amphibious resupply cargo vessels that were used to ship to shore resupply, um, in 1981, based out of South Melbourne, which is where the Antarctic Division used to use our craft to resupply Macquarie and Antarctic bases in those days, the, they replaced the old duck that was used in the, in the 50s and 60s. And, um, I was an army reservist, part-time soldier, and I went to the boss and I said, Sir, he said, I said, uh, I'm keen to go south. Would you accept the reservist? And he said, give us the time, pass the courses, and you're in. Um, so I did all that. And the training program required about um, six weeks of training up in, um, in Middlehead, Sydney, and doing various courses. And, um, and so I was the third officer with the Army Lark Detachment to Anari in 1982-83. And was a fantastic, life-changing experience. And the fulfilment of a dream. I haven't covered enough history in the series to have gotten up to the ducks yet, but the Larks are a similar construction amphibious. The Lark is a boat with wheels. The duck is a truck with a prop. <laughs> Big difference. In other words, the Lark's seaworthy, but the duck's not really. Ah, that's an important factor, particularly at a spot like Macquarie Island. Absolutely, yes. And I can recall at Macquarie Island in 82 when we were there on the, the dear old um, Nella Dam, which is now at the bottom of the sea, unfortunately. Um, I've got a video of that being sunk and it took a long time to go. They didn't want to, they could have brought it back to Melbourne, but it was an insurance job. Worth more at the bottom of the sea. Which really upset Dr. Philip Law, who was a personal friend of mine at the time. He's dead now, of course, but because uh, he'd been promised it by the government for a million bucks as a museum to set up in Hay in um, Adelaide. Didn't happen. Anyway, um, Macquarie Island, we were unloading a um, significant amount of um, steel girders and, and, and concrete and other things to, for the rebuilding program that was going on on all our bases at that time. And I can remember coming into Macquarie Island with the ship with the lark quite poorly loaded because the girders came down a bit skew-whipped and we were on a, quite an angle going in, in the shore and if we capsized it'd still be there because uh, they've got no voids, they sink very quickly. And there is one actually did sink at um, Davis years ago and it's still there somewhere in the bottom. But the fantastic piece of kit and in fact the Inari Division or the Antarctic Division uh, now uses those larks that we had that the Army gave them after we'd finished with them and they're still using them from Macquarie Island because there's nothing else to do the job as well. Who built those? They're American, of course. Um, the Yanks had a, a Lark 5, which it is, it's a five-ton load carrier. Then they built a Lark 15, 15 load, load carrier, and then they had a Lark 30, which is so damn big it wouldn't fit on a road. Um, that Australia bought all the spare parts off the Yanks, oh, I would have been back in the uh, late 80s, I suppose, when they got rid of them. And we're still using them today. Well, we're not, but the division is. And the training that you said you did at Sydney for them, yeah, what did um, that comprise? At the Maritime Wing for Army School Transport, and I was a transport officer at that time, was based in Middlehead. Um, it's a place called Chowder Bay, which is now a um, heritage site, handed back to the state government. The Army's not there anymore. 
um, stunning place to, to live and work, and um, that's where all the training used to occur. And how manoeuvrable is a lark? Like if you've got if you've got sea ice coming at you or an iceberg coming down the, um, how quickly can you oh, get out well, of the it's way? A, it's, it's a thin skin aluminium hull, and it, its maximum speed would be ten knots. Um, that's still pretty. Three hundred horsepower uh, Cummins diesel engine, so pretty powerful piece of kit. We used to do all our training in Port Phillip Bay, um, go down to Swan Island, which is a, has a military base on it, work out of there weekends and for weeks on end sometimes, in, in the um, entrance to Port Phillip, where the ref, weather can get pretty cut up. It was uh, when, when I was with the reserve, but all our regular training, regular army training was at Middlehead in Sydney. What sort of conditions would preclude um, lark operations? What, what sort of swell conditions can you work through? Uh, well, I've had them out on the on Port Phillip Bay when uh, it's probably been four to five metre swells, which is about the maximum you'd want to run them in comfortably. I remember coming back from Swan Island one weekend where we had to get back because I had part-timers that all had to go to work on Monday morning, and uh, most of the crew were, were throwing up because it was pretty rough, and we ended up going into Black Rock and driving back. And I remember <laughs> pulling out of the water, and this this guy who was fishing down there. Was just, my God, I've never seen anything like that. Would you go back and do that again? Because we surfed in on the waves, then drove off. <laughs> yeah, good piece of kit. Really good. Fond memories, I really do. And what was the what was in place at the time to get fuel ashore at Macquarie Island? Well, we used to float um, float big um, tanks. They were probably ten thousand litre tanks, and we'd we'd tow them ashore. They were full of um, diesel, which is lighter than water, of course. And, Float them ashore, and if the wind was pretty pretty hard, which I quite often was, particularly at Mawson, catabatic winds literally fall down off the plateau every day. You normally set your watch by it, and um, so you had a bit of trouble with uh, with them wanting to not go where you wanted them to because of the wind. Um, Horseshoe Harbour is pretty small. I don't know that the um, Aurora fits in easily, but the, certainly the smaller ships we had in those days did. Can you talk me through the launch operation from the Nella Dan getting a getting a lark into the water? <laughs> Tell you a funny story about that. We got when we got to Macquarie Island. It was um, late at night, and um, we wanted to get the larks ashore. We had three larks on board Nella, um, to unload and load back back load. And um, my boss decided, "Oh, we'll get these off tonight and get in, so we're ready to start operations at first light." And so my boat was off first, and they, the, the Nella had, um, had um, um, didn't have slimming cranes, it had derricks, which you, where you've got two arms and drums of coiled steel wire rope, moving concert and, and other sort of thing, and lift yes. things up. And um, a bit complicated to operate. Anyway, they lifted us into the water, and there's a fair bit of swell running in the quarry all the time, which is why you have to use larks, you can't easily use flat bottom barges and um, that was fine we got in the water and off we go no load at this stage just empty and uh, I come ashore between a whole lot of kelp and the rocky outcrops it was about a probably about a 30 meter maybe 50 meter gap where you can drive in well, it was back then I'm sure it's still the same and I uh, pulled in out of the water and onto this muddy track and boom not going anywhere bog to the, to, the, to, the, to the hole. Get over the side. What the bloody hell is going on here? Oh dear, four flat tyres. And what had happened on the ship without them telling us, the crew 
to stop, because it's pretty rough weather getting down there, to stop the larks bouncing on the deck of the, of the ship, they'd let all the tyres down without telling us. And so that was fun because for the whole night we got no sleep. We had a, we had a crane out from the base, which is about a K down the track. Um, take one, we lift the lark up, take one wheel off, take it back, blow it up, bring it back, put it back on, then do that four times. And by first light we'd finished and we just started work with no sleep. <laughs> Fun and games. Oh, it's part and parcel of working in those indeed. sorts of latitudes. I've been asking people um, to recount their most inspiring moment in the South and their most harrowing moment. And you're welcome to take some time and come back to me if you want to. No, I don't need to. Um, probably one and the same. And the most inspiring moment was... Uh, I was making a documentary down there, by the way, for the education department because I was and still am a secondary teacher. I told you I was an Army Reservist. I just had leave for nine months to go and do this with the Army. The Army said, we'll give you leave um, to do it. And the education department said, uh, sorry, the department said, we'll give you leave to do it so long as you make us a film. as a film and TV producer for the education department at that stage in my life. And the army said, well, let's just, we'll leave you at Mawson Base over the summer, which was about eight weeks, when they normally don't leave the army crews there. They take them back and forth on the ship. They left me there with one lark and one um, engineer operator to make the documentary, so long as it didn't interfere with the army operation, which it didn't. So I, I didn't get a lot of sleep, but I did both jobs. Um, and our job, whilst we were at the base with this one lark over the summer, was to clear up the, the base and get rid of some of the rubbish. And of course, what we did then, you can't do now, but we loaded up the lark with all these old field drums and other crap from the rubbish dump, put a couple of pick holes in the drums, chucked them into Kister Strait, where they're still sitting on the bottom. What sort of depth? But these days, everything has to come back. Um, oh, probably a three to 500 metres, maybe. Reasonably deep. So, but getting back to your question, um, we'd, we'd, um, we'd had a, about five or six, five days out off the base. I managed to, because I was making this documentary, they said, oh, you can go with these guys. We're taking dog teams out that are going to um, harbour over at Fang Pink, which is about 50 k's inland in a mountain area um, overnight. And then the dogs are going to go off to service an inland man, unmanned weather station for several weeks. So you can go out with the dogs and, um, and then come back a few days later. So we did that, and I was making the documentary as I went, shooting 16mm um, footage on an old clockwork bullets camera and double shooting all the audio because the camera was so damn noisy. I had to shoot audio separately to video, which was a pain in the ass. 100 loads in the camera, 100 foot loads, and every time I loaded and unloaded, I'd do in bare hands at about minus 25, which is not fun. <laughs> you work fast. <laughs> Anyway, um, we decided, and I've always been a photographer as well, so you know, I had the camera gear there. I used to, my nickname in Antarctica was Click Click, because I always was. Anyway, the guy said, oh, we'll go up, we'll climb up the top, top of this scree, scree slope, about 1,000 feet up the top of this ridge in the mountains, and um, so we did that. Scree is what's, uh, it's very uh, loose and slippery, crushed rock, basically, from all the, all the, um, weather that over millions of years breaks up the rock faces. So we scrambled up and we sat on the top there and um, taking some photographs and the guy said, oh, we're going back now. They want to go back down to the, the uh, we had containers out there, which was accommodation. And uh, we're going to go back and play cards and have a beer. Um, I said, well, I'm going to sit up here for a bit longer and 
take some more photos of just drinking this amazing environment, which I did, which they wouldn't let you do these days, of course, because I was out there on my own, and it's a no-no. And uh, I sat there and took me some photos and drinking in this environment and having a bit of a, a bit of a, a think about my sister who'd only committed suicide three weeks before I went to Antarctica. I was thinking about her. And anyway, um, I watched the sunset and as the sun dips below the horizon in Antarctica, if the weather conditions are right, you will see this instantaneous bright green, iridescent green flash. It's an infraction pattern. Just heads up into the ionosphere. Saw that, didn't take a photo because I didn't expect it. And I'm sitting there a bit longer and I could, start, I could hear the, the rocks around me popping and spitting. And I looked around and these little bits of rock flaking off, which is what sort of causes scream. Uh, because the sun had been out and these rocks are dark, uh, blacky brown, they absorb heat. And when the sun sets, the temperature drops so rapidly that they lose their heat so quickly that they, they fracture. So that was an interesting experience. And then I'm sitting there a bit longer as I'm slowly freezing. And, um, and it was a twilight because the sun doesn't actually really set. It goes below the horizon. But it's twilight pretty much all night at that time of year. I'm talking, I'm not talking late January. Um, I could hear this moaning and groaning. Something, something akin to a ricochet or a whiplash in the distance, like very faint. I thought I was hearing things, but I went back to the base a few days later and I said to one of the weather guys, what, what was all that about? He said, are you just listening to the plateau move? Which it does, constantly. So that was a pretty uh, seminal moment for me. <laughs> yeah. But on the way back from that hill, after I was getting too cold, I thought, I've got to go back down. Um, I'm walking along the edge of the mountain ridge um, on a moraine line which is really something you shouldn't do because that's where crevassing will occur because of the plateau moving slowly but inexorably past the, the mountain ridges. I'm walking along and uh, on my own and next thing my foot falls into a gaping hole that's created in the snow and my foot's dangling in open space. Obviously I'd trodden on a crevasse. Don't know how deep or how big. The adrenaline thumping. I sat there for a minute, probably, probably only a few seconds. Felt like an eternity. So what am I going to do here? I'm not, nothing's happening. Happening. I'm okay. So I just slowly bummed back, turned around very gently and carefully, and trod on every footstep I'd made back about 100 metres, and then we took a 90 degree turn out of the plateau for quite a while and walked back that way. And when I got back to the hut, the guys were starting to get worried because I'd been out so long, and they were thinking of. Email um, radioing Mawson Station to say this guy's lost. <laughs> we better go and find him. That would have been a, an absolute disaster for me and everyone else. But it didn't happen, so it was all good. It seems a common thread that so many of the people I'm speaking to, their their most harrowing moment involves crevasses. Yes. And I'm, I'm terrified of crevasse fields, and I think I've I've justified that having spoken to so many members of the Inari Club this weekend. I think it was in a rational fear earlier. Now I think it's a rational fear. It's a very real risk in Antarctica. And well, you know the story about Mawson, of course. Um, and the last thing I did before I left, because I did a lot of flying with the chopper pilot, uh, New Zealand pilot, it's very good. I used Bell Air Rangers in those days, jet rangers. Uh, he said, now, he said, mate, he said, I want you to, I've done you a few favours, I want you to sit on the skid, I'm going to, I want to, Photograph down onto the glacier and down the crevasse on the Sawstall Glacier before we go. And um, 
So I sat on the skid and put these photos for him. And then um, we left and we went back to Davis um, on the way back home after the ship returned. And um, we left from Mawson, we got to Davis. Blizzard conditions had slowed us from unloading the ship or backloading the ship at Mawson when it came back. It was only probably 100 metres offshore, but you wouldn't see the ship till you hit it sometimes because it was white out conditions. But we had to keep working because we we're on a real tight time frame. Anyway, we, by the time we left Davis a week or so later, we were a week behind schedule. And um, overnight the sea had frozen probably to about 10 a centimetre or so. And we'd stayed ashore that night and the lark's going out over this like sheets of glass which we're breaking as we're going, it's like a shattering glass sound. And these huge sheets of thin ice were just scooting out in front of us, there's no friction in front of us. Fantastic sight. And we got back on the ship, they lifted us back on, we pissed off and um, that night um, the sea froze to the point where we couldn't move. So the ship was stuck fast. The nano guess we were on at this stage, it's an ice reinforced double hull ship, it's not an ice breaker. And so it, um, we were in trouble. And the ice was getting thicker by the hour. Uh, a couple of days later, we decided we'd get the captain said, "Oh, well, we'll get some of the guys over the side to um, try and dig the ship out, which you can't really do." But it gave them something to do to stop them being beside themselves. All of these guys have been there for 15 months and desperately at home. Us summers hadn't been, so it was an adventure for us, I guess. But um, they, uh, we couldn't dig the ship out. You'd, you'd crowbar and pick probably. 10 metres and it would just freeze up behind you. And by this stage the ice was about half a metre thick and there was no way the ship was going to move anywhere. We kept the props turning and a, a hole at the stern of the ship so we didn't freeze up the rudder and damage it. Um, and we were there for probably several days and the captain said, well, what are we going to do? Uh, we'll call the Yanks. There was an American Coast Guard icebreaker halfway back to Hawaii from the Antarctic. And I was in the radio shack when we called him up. And I befriended the, the radio operator and I spent a lot of time on the, on the bridge. And so they called him up and the, the, the captain of this, I can't remember the name, the Coast Guard vessel said, ah, oh, sorry fellas, we're halfway home to Hawaii, you know, you're on your own, good luck. Thanks very much, fellas. So the um, captain said, well, what are we going to do next? Because there was, there was this big iceberg that kept circling the ship like a predatory animal. But if it decided to come through, it would have taken us out because icebergs are four fists below the water and one fifth above. And we're a little three and a half thousand ton ship. We wouldn't have lasted very long. We would have had to abandon the ship. Um, so that was on, we're monitoring it constantly on the radar. So he said, oh, we'll get onto the Russians. So we called up the Captain Markov, which was on the other side of the continent, two weeks steaming away. And this very thick accent comes back with the, uh, the captain straight away. Uh, I can't remember the exact words he said, but in broken English, uh, we have changed direction. We'll, we'll be there in two weeks. We're just clearing it with Vladivostok, which is our home port. So the Russians, who were technically our enemies at that stage during Cold War, said, we're on the way. Without a question, we're coming. The Yanks told us, good luck, you're on your own. Interesting story. And was that the solution? The Russians coming was... Well, unfortunately, what... we never got to see them because they were halfway there. About five days later, there was a, a massive hurricane developed where north and it broke these leaves up in the ice and we were able to punch our own way out very slowly throughout the night. 
steering very carefully past these massive icebergs with our spotlight, oh, yeah. with our spotlight on, the, on the front lighting everything up and then we went out into the, into the hurricane. So for about three days, 48 hours at least, it might have been longer, I lost count of time. We're in this massive um, seas, 100 foot swells, 30 meter swells with rollers on top. The bow of the ship would turn to the left, the right while the stern twisted to the left. We got kind of occasionally got water down the funnel. We, um, we had a set of three massive waves that smashed by the helicopter, one of the helicopters on the heli deck, which was a total write off. Stretched the um, tie down, aircraft tie down straps to the point where it nearly went over the other side. Um, the captain sent one of his mates down to me at one stage. I was strapped into a bunk trying to have a bit of rest, but you couldn't sleep. The noise was horrendous. The movement of the ship was horrendous. Our cabin was over the stern. The prop wasn't governed very well. Every time there was a massive swell, you'd nose drive into one swell, and then you'd ride up, and then the prop would come up out of the water and race, and then smash back into the water. And that went on for hour on the hour for hour. The cook had third degree burns in the, in the galley and there was no food. He broke his arm and he called uh, Danish salami, which no one wanted because we all felt a bit crook in those sort of seas you would. Um, on one occasion there was this massive roll over as the ship got hit broadside and um, we were in the, in, the, um, in the dining area where half the tables hadn't been tied down. So all the furniture and all the crockery and all the chairs go flying across the other side. And I remember vividly this couple of guys who'd been watching some Danish porn because there was nothing else to watch on the ship. Um, just died for the TV and the VCR because they're the only things I wanted to say. Save the porn. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, we, we eventually got out of that. At one stage, the, the captain sent his mate down to me and then said when I was tied in the boat, uh, look, he said, if this gets any worse, you're going to have to be on deck with your crew and everyone else, all the expeditions are going to have to be out there to help us jettison all our deck cargo because if we broadside, we're done. And so we kept the, and we were quite low in the water, we were heavily laden. And um, he kept the head into the sea. I can remember this captain, Gisli Gajudson, his name was, he was an Icelander, top bloke. Late 30s, and um, he was stood on that bridge for days on end, hard in his sleep, with a cup of black coffee in his hand, moving with the motion of the ship, never spill a drop. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic to watch. Anyway, we finally got out of that, and um, because the ship was like a ghost ship because it was everything was iced up. Uh, the anchors were frozen into the corrals on the side of the hull. They had to get guys over the side to smash them out with big lumps of wood. And we had these big wooden mallets we had to smash up the ice on the deck because it was highly dangerous. And then we got back to Hobart about a week later. That's the, so nearest, there you go. That's the nearest thing I've, I've heard in the time that I've been talking to people about their experiences in Antarctica to an absolute disaster. Like all, all hands could have gone well, down there. There were times when we were concerned. Yeah. Anyway. And you're the Inari Club... Historian, you've been recording oral histories yes, with Inari Club yes, members. Yes, um, I took that job over from uh, another lass who was doing it previously, and she did 69 of them. And I've probably organised about another 15 or 20 so far, and we're continuing to do it. Uh, tomorrow, we've got the 70th anniversary of the, of the Macca first, um, first expedition happening tomorrow night, and we've got some of the original guys that were there coming in the early 50s. and. Um, and two of the, the duck operators that were there on that very first trip. Um, I'll be there tomorrow, and so I'll be doing some more oral histories. And 
recording the whole thing on video. I'd love to sit in and just watch how you go about it because I don't have any training. I'm making this up as I go along. Doesn't matter, mate. You're passionate about it. That's what counts. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. John Gillies was a radio man with Anari and I recorded a most excellent recounting of his time on station, the challenges of the job and the changes he saw during his career as communications technology moved forward in leaps and bounds. Unfortunately, my own relationship with some of that technology tripped me up and I didn't end up with everything I thought I'd captured, so I hope John won't mind sitting down with me again at some point in the future. I certainly appreciated his handiwork at the Cape Denison Hut replica, where John's expertise provided the replica spark gap wireless unit and the replica acetylene generator, matching the real deals as closely as could only be achieved by someone with John's knowledge and experience. Here's the snippet that remains of our long discussion. We had a state school chaplain was appointed there, and he was the second uh, state school chaplain to be appointed in Victoria. And he had been assigned to St Macquarie Island on that first expedition in 1948. He was a cosmic ray physicist, and he had turned to religion, which I could never get my head around as to what this had happened. But for our religious instruction, he'd show us his slides and, and stuff, penguins on Macquarie Island and stuff. And that was Antarctica as far as I was concerned. So, but I kept in contact with him over the years, and when I became a radio technician, I said, "All right, this is they need radio technicians in Antarctica." So I, I worked towards that. Went through Cradle Mountain, Lake Sinclair, and learned to ski and all this sort of thing. They, they eventually took me, and uh, after three or four applications, and uh, they took me in 1967 there. But when I, he, I had asked him about the wireless equipment that was on Macquarie Island, he didn't remember seeing any of it there, but other guys had seen it over the years and others said they hadn't seen it. And in 1967, these other guys brought the two generators and the petrol engine down from Wireless Hill back there, which that was being sent back to TMAG here in Tasmania. The One of the generators has been restored and is in the compactness in the control atmosphere room and she won't let it out to get in the salty atmosphere. And the other, the petrol engine, the, the die-cast crankcase was badly broken. Whether it was broken before they brought it down, I don't know exactly what happened there. But the other, the AC generator is still sitting in their store out in Hobart here and has, hasn't been touched. So I've got photographs, I photographs of when I saw it and identified all the, all the people there about 10 years ago when I was down here. Um, and when when this uh, the, uh, the chaplain died, I went to his funeral and met people that had known him as a child and talked about this sort of thing. And, and the year he went, the, the first year, the um, mechanic drowned skiing in the lake. And I thought maybe that's what had made him go to religion after being a, a closet scientist. But then when I met these people that knew him as, as a youth and as a child in, in, in Victoria before, he, they said he was a people person. He didn't like to be in the laboratory. He liked to be out meeting and greeting people and talking to people and working with people rather than being cooped up in a laboratory like you would have been as a scientist. So that was why he, he got into religion. So it made a lot of, lot of sense to me after that. But uh, after being in Antarctica and seeing the solitude and things when you're out there on your own and the dead silence, it, and see the shooting stars and things like that. You can easily imagine anything could happen. 
you mentioned the drowning in the in the tarn. Yeah, the, that yeah. was the diesel engineer. Yeah, Charles Scoville. And that's why they had to fly a, a new diesel yeah, engineer. Yeah, they, in. they brought the other bloke in on the Catalina there and landed there. And that got <coughs> the pilot wanted his stamps frank, so he went ashore, <laughs> which uh, ship had the craft had to stooge up and down until he came back with his frank stamp before they go home. Again. So he wasn't very popular. And that was a, a fairly iffy takeoff with the rocket oh, motors. With the, the Jado bottles on there, but the, the, the waves have got to be just right to, to be able to bounce at the right time to get in the air. And, and the, the sea at Macquarie Island is yeah, very unpredictable. I hadn't heard that aspect of the getting the getting the passport franked. No, the, the first aid covers. Oh, first aid covers. Stamps franked, yeah, not, not the passport, <laughs> the stamps. <laughs> Philately will get you nowhere. Yeah, he, well, I don't know what he did with them. But <laughs> now, Poetry Corner. I've had an odd association with Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, since my early teens. I first encountered the work secondhand as a series of references and plot points in Douglas Adams' novel, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. That was a very confusing book for me on the first pass, as I didn't know anything about Coleridge or the life of Cambridge Dons. After following up on those, it's become one of my favourite books, but damn it, it was hard work getting to that state of affairs. I've since read Coleridge's poem in anthologies of his work, in comic book form, and listened to it spoken by professional actors. My favourite variation comes via Dave Davies, an industrial chemist, Hobson's Bay local larrikin, and yet another person who came into my life through Storytelling Australia. Dave was my introduction to the work of C.J. Dennis and helped inspire some of my more esoteric experiments in my own approach to sharing my experiences and inspirations in an oral setting. And it was a tremendous and unexpected delight when, one evening at a fabled night's gathering, he busted out The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in a rote memory recitation. I didn't catch the start, and Dave presented the piece in truncated form to fit the needs of the night. I include it here with my own recitation of the opening lines to fill the gap at the start, as a taste both of my friend's talent for dramatic interpretation and as a key piece of Antarctic literature. Coleridge lived in the same era as James Cook, and the excitement caused by the voyages of the Endeavour, the Resolution and the Adventure in the imaginations of the British public found its most passionate expression in Coleridge's epic tale of transgression and penance. Coleridge strove to make the poem appear more profound through archaic phrasings, later adding commentary notes explaining the more obscure passages as though some scholar was reading over the work long after it was completed, a shot at lending some faux antiquity cred to the piece. I don't know how it's perceived in literary circles, but I like it as a story told in poem form and its Antarctic themes and its central role in a Douglas Adams novel further cement its place in my heart. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long grey beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stoppest thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand, there was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand Hold me, off. greybeard loon. Unhand me, greybeard loon. 
exudes, his hand drops thee. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his wealth. The wedding guest sat on a stone. He cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbour cleared, merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright, and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day, till all the mast at noon. The wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. The bride, the bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she, nodding their heads before her go, the merry minstrelsy. The wedding guest he beat his breast. He cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man the bright-eyed mariner. And now the storm blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. He took us with o'ertaking wings and chased us south along, with sloping mast and dipping prow, as who pursued with yell and blow, still treads the shadow of his foe, and forward bends his head. The ship grow fast, loud roared the blast, and southward I we fled. And now there came both mist and snow, and it grew wondrous cold, and ice mast high came floating by, as green as emerald. And through the mists the snowy cliffs did send a dismal sheen, nor shape of men, nor beasts we ken. The ice was all between. The ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around. It cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swound. At length did cross an albatross. Moreover, fog it came, as if it had been a Christian soul. We hailed it in God's name. It ate the food it ne'er had it, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit. The helmsman steered us through, and a good south wind blew up behind. The albatross did follow, and every day, for food or play, came to the mariner's hollow. On mast or shroud, in fog or cloud, it perched for vespers nine, while through the night, in fog, smoke white, glimmered the white moonshine. God save thee, ancient mariner, from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why looks thou so? my crossbow. I shot the albatross. The sun now rose upon the right, 
out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow, nor any day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow. And I had done a hellish thing, and it would work and woe, for all the bird, I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, said they, the bird to slay that made the wind to blow. Nor dim, nor red, like God's own head, the glorious sun uprist. Then, all a bird, I had killed the bird that brought the fog and mist. Twas right, said they, the bird to slay that brought the fog and mist. The fair breeze blew, the white sail flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze. The sail dropped down. Twas still as still could be. And we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon right up above the mast did stand, no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we sat, nor breath, nor motion, as silent as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, but near a drop to drink. And every tongue through utter drought was shriveled at the root. We could not speak no more than if we had been choked with soot. Ah, well a day, what evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. The ancient narrative goes through many more trials and tribulations with the albatross around his neck until it falls off and he is able to sail home to his home port and he parts company with the wedding guest. And here are the last two stanzas. The mariner, whose eye is bright, whose beard with age is hoar, is gone. And now the wedding guest turns from the bridegroom's door. He went as one who has been stunned and is its sense forlorn. A sadder and a wiser man he rose for morrow morn. Following up on some events that got a mention in a recent episode, the hull of Roald Amundsen's purpose-built Arctic exploration vessel, the Maud, 
was towed on its barge on the final leg of its voyage to Oslo during the 2018 northern summer, and is expected to undergo preservation for display alongside the Fram and the Gjør. I recently listened to the episode about the Belgica in preparation for collaborating with Manuel of the Random History of Belgium podcast on an episode about more recent Belgian activity in the South, and realised I incorrectly identified Henrik Oktoski as Belgian, where any Antarctic history buff worth their buffing knows Arktowski was so Polish that Poland named its research station in Admiralty Bay, King George Island, after him. I don't know how that mistake snuck in, as it's not as though I didn't know his nationality. I'll track the mistake further and see if it was scripted or an on-the-fly brain fart. I don't intend correcting it in the episode, but I like to know from where the errors arise so I can buttress my efforts against analogous anomalies as much as I am able. Saying hi to Andrew and Megan this episode, who are awesome neighbours, inspiring parents, and in Andrew's case, one of the most impressive musicians I've ever seen perform.